Hello and welcome to Greetings from Brussels. This is number 14 of our Global Tech Swamp podcast. Um, This will be the last time our Greetings from Brussels audience will hear me say, I'm your host, Alex. That's right. I am leaving the hosting responsibilities of the global arm of our Tech Swamp podcast in the trusty hands of Morgan. Um, So from here on out, you'll be getting the latest on EU tech policy happenings from Morgan, Anna, and Niels. Um, Of course, you can still catch me hosting the U.S. Tech Swamp episodes at the end of the month. Um, So, you know, not entirely uh, going away. Um, But with that, I am joined by Morgan, Anna, and Niels from our EU team. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Alex. And uh, thank you for hosting the the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to get to just listen um, moving forward. It'll be uh, continue to be an exciting learning experience for me. Um, Anna, hello. Hello, Alex. One last time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Oh, it's making me sad. Um, and Niels, hello there. Hi, everyone. Hello, hello. Um, All right, well, with the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU turning to Slovenia next week, it's time to have a closer look at the progress of one of the key regulations that will come up during this presidency, which is the Digital Services Act, or DSA. Uh, This proposed law aims at clarifying the rules and obligations for online businesses, uh, in particular, the handling of illegal online content. Anna will walk us through the details of this regulation and what they mean for app developers in Europe and around the world. But first, a bit of tech history and this month's tech headlines in Europe. Did you know that before the end of the 1950s, computers were not operated with keyboards? Instead, people used dials, switches, and punch cards. In fact, on the 4th of July 1956, MIT's Whirlwind became the first computer in the world to allow its users to enter commands for a keyboard. And the computer itself had actually been completed five years earlier. The use of keyboards, however, takes us back to the um, 1800s. For example, the QWERTY keyboard, which is still the most popular keyboard in the world, was patented back in 1868. And the QWERTY layout made its debut on July 1st, 1874, when the Remington typewriter hit the market. Before its inventor, newspaper editor Christopher Nathan Scholes came along, um, the keys of typewriters were arranged in um, alphabetical order. Now they're arranged according to which you use the most, which um, makes typing a lot easier. Um, And that's all for Tech History for today. And now it's time for Brussels Bites. Morgan, Anna, and Niels, can you walk us through the latest policy news from the Brussels bubble? Sure. So the German Competition Authority, the Bundeskartenland, recently initiated proceedings against Apple. In the framework of Germany's newly adopted reform of its competition law, the Bundeskartenland first needs to determine whether a company is of paramount significance for competition across markets. If it concludes um, this is the case, it can prohibit a company from engaging in anti-competitive practices. So the Competition Authority has now initiated this first step against Apple with no set deadline to conclude the investigation. Amongst other things, the Bundeskartenland will look at Apple's market position, financial strength and access to competitively sensitive data. 
And uh, based on its finding, it intends to assess Apple's specific practices in more detail in a possible further proceeding. And after that, the competition of authority could restrict or prohibit certain practices. So we'll fo closely follow um, all developments and you can find more details in the show notes. According to a new study commissioned by EU tech lobby Digital Europe, restricting data flows in Europe could lead to economic damages worth 2 trillion euros by 2030. This is roughly the size of Italy's economy. Overburdening rules on data flows would also result in 2 million fewer new jobs, the report says. Another study conducted by the European Commission estimated that the EU data economy was worth 325 billion euros in 2019. The report also highlighted the need to spread the benefits of data-generated growth, noting that 50% of SMEs should be using big data, and data should make up about 6% of Europe's economy. It's increasingly essential for App Association members that policymakers put in place a solid framework for data flows. And the EU is currently working to build common data spaces as part of the Data Governance Act. This initiative is part of the EU's data strategy, and it's currently going through the legislative process. For more information and links to the studies, head to the show notes. The European Commission published a new report that takes stock of national strategies for artificial intelligence and provides suggestions for the future developments. The report also presents policies to promote data access and sharing, as well as actions to stimulate the use of AI in public services. Meanwhile, the European Data Protection Board and the European Data Protection Supervisor called for a ban on using AI for automated recognition of human features in public accessible spaces and some of some other uses that can lead to unfair discrimination this joint opinion this joint opinion is not binding but signals a strong position from the EU's privacy watchdogs in a worldwide perspective the United Nations educational scientific and cultural organization better known as UNESCO reached a consensus uh, consensus on the first uh, world's, the world's first guidelines on AI ethics. The idea is to make AI standards a norm that countries can refer to and rely on. The guidelines are not binding and the UN is not particularly known for strictly enforcing their agreed guidelines. For more information on these guidelines and reports on AI, alongside with our answers to the European Commission's public consultation on AI, please visit the show notes. And now for the most exciting part of the Brussels Bites. Um, after our latest stuff in Germany, a few weeks ago, the App Association is continuing its App Makers Tour. So next week, on the 13th of July, we're in France, just after the National Day, um, just before the National Day, actually. We're joined by policymakers, um, such as a member of the European Parliament, Sandra Grossi, National Assembly member, Eric Botterel, French uh, regulator, Arcep, um, and Yvonne Bion and a member and app developer Stanislas Douevrin from founder and CEO of Obibi and we'll discuss ongoing platform regulation in the EU so you can sign up directly via the link in the show notes or check out all our previous recordings and blogs and recaps from our previous events. And that's all for Brussels Bites. And now, our policy discussion. 
Today, we're focusing on the Digital Services Act, or DSA for short. Um, it's one of a two-part piece of legislation the European Commission proposed as parts of, part of its Digital Services Act package back in December of 2020. Um, I'm handing it over to Morgana Niels for the discussion with Anna, who is our resident expert on this issue, to talk about what this proposal entails and how it could affect small businesses. Yes, so in brief, um, the DSA mostly aims to tackle how platforms handle illegal content and would increase the responsibilities. So the DSA is not to be confused with the DMA, the Digital Markets Act, uh, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So the DMA is the second proposal issued part of that package and focuses more on competition issues in the online economy. The DSA will likely have an impact on all businesses um, that conduct uh, online activity. So let's dive right in. Um, Anna, can you explain to us what is exactly the DSA and most importantly, who does it apply to? Yes. Um, as we all know, EU legislation is notoriously complicated. <laughs> so let's start with the basics. Um, so the DSA um, is a law that intends to increase and harmonize the legal responsibilities and obligations for platform and information service providers that operate in the digital single market. And the digital single market is the EU's internal, like it includes all 27 member states in this internal market for digital services and products. And because of that, it would also, the DSA would be an EU-wide law applying across the member states. Now, in terms of the content, um, the Digital Services Act addresses issues like handling um, of illegal online content, um, content moderation by online platforms, the protection of users' fundamental rights online. Um, for example, in the EU, um, privacy is a fundamental right, um, and the increased information sharing between platforms and their business users, as well as consumers, is also covered by the DSA. And for non-EU listeners, um, illegal content in the EU refers to all content that violates either EU or national member state laws, but it does not include harmful content. Um, and so the DSA basically is a law intended to revise and update the e-commerce directive because that's 20 years old, which is a really long time in the digital and technology space. And it's supposed to bring greater transparency to the digital single market. And particularly, um, in particular for dealing with very large online platforms. So in terms of the scope, like I mentioned earlier, the DSA applies to any intermediary service provider that has European customers or European business users. And this can range from internet access providers, hosting services, um, online platforms like marketplaces or social media platforms or app stores as well. And this um, applies to all platforms of all sizes, but there are specific rules included in the DSA that target the very large online platforms that pose particular risks in the dis uh, dissemination of illegal content and societal harms. And those are the platforms that are considered very large are those that reach more than 10% of the 450 million consumers in Europe. And so while those very large online platforms are a major or the major focus of the DSA, the DSA does not exempt medium-sized 
um, medium-sized service providers from its obligations. So this means basically that the obligations companies will have to comply with under the DSA depend on the role, size, and impact they have on the European online ecosystem. And this is a lot of information, and we wrote several blogs on the DSA and the implications it could have on small businesses. And you can find all that on our website if you would like to read more. And if I'm not making any sense, I hope the blog posts do. <laughs> no, you are making a lot of sense. So you, you mentioned um, the, the e-commerce directive, and um, this is a law that has truly shaped the internet um, as we know it by allowing, for example, businesses not to be uh, liable for the content post posted on their platforms. Um, obviously, well, that was a long time ago, uh, the online environment has changed and the law needs to be reviewed to take into account these developments um, and also, well, in particular, the growth of large platforms and increased illegal content. We can therefore expect this new piece uh, of legislation to have the same effect in shaping the online world for the next 20 years. And so my next question to you is how uh, will it affect um, the smallest ones out there, the small businesses like our members? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, the text is still being negotiated, so it's going to be difficult to provide a precise answer because unfortunately the App Association cannot yet predict the future. But from what has been proposed originally by the European Commission and considering the ongoing discussions in the European Parliament, um, we can highlight a few things that are are pretty good. Um, so the, the current text of the DSA um, clarifies the responsibilities for online platforms and other intermediary services, um, and thereby it provides legal certainty, which is good because then businesses know what they can legally do and not do. and um, that gives them the needed stability to attract investments, um, you know, invest, spend their time and money on research and development, um, getting venture capital for new products, and so on. Um, the DSA also clarifies obligations and safeguards for dealing with illegal content, which is kind of a new issue in like the digital age that we live in. So it's good that it clarifies these previously murky rules or non-existing rules in some instances. Um, and so these obligations basically state that every hosting provider has to implement a notice and takedown mechanism to enable users to notify the platform of illegal content that has been posted on the platform. Um, and all these content removals that the platform undertakes, um, they have to include an explanation for the user whose content was taken down by the platform um, and then the platform also has to publish detailed reports on its removal activities. And so that obviously increases the transparency of these operations. And um, also users are able to contest these removal decisions if they feel like the platform did not take the right step here. Um, and because as mentioned earlier, this is an EU-wide rule, uh, an EU-wide regulation, this is really good for kind of the harmonization of rules across the digital single market um, and really helps to minimize having a patchwork of rules because digital services don't really have borders so much as like maybe physical goods do. So this is really good to have kind of a harmonized approach to um, online issues like illegal content, for example. Um, but then, unfortunately, there are also some bad things in this draft. Um, specifically, there are three provisions that I think we think could really impact our members negatively. Um, 
one of them is the obligation for all platforms, um, even the smallest ones, um, so size does not matter here, um, to implement automated notice and action mechanisms. And small companies don't always have the resources to react rapidly to take down requests because they're very small and they don't have as much money as the bigger players. And also the DSA includes a requirement to obtain a legal representative in the EU, which is, again, very, very expensive. And like I just said, small businesses don't have that much money. Um, and the EU estimates that having a legal representative in the in the EU costs of around 50,000 euros per year, which that's a lot of money for a small business of one or two people. And then the last thing that we're concerned with is the possibility of a shifting threshold for very large online platforms. And by that, I mean um, the categorization of a large online platform as um, a business that has more than 10% of 450 million users in the EU. And that can shift. The EU can change that. And that kind of ruins the legal certainty aspect of this legislation because then platforms don't know which obligations they have to comply with if the threshold for the size shifts constantly. If we focus a bit more on these concerns, Anna, how are the discussions amongst policymakers going on these issues? Another great question, because there are very different positions on this issue within the European Parliament. Um, so Recently, the lead committee on the DSA file, um, that's the Internal Market and Consumer Protection Committee, also called IMCO for short. Um, and so they're the lead committee on this file in the European Parliament. They issued a draft report, which is their opinion on this proposed law, and they submit that to the European Commission. And we have serious concerns with this draft because it would impose disproportionate obligations on small digital actors if their changes were implemented in the DSA. Um, so the report suggests removing most exemptions that are currently in the DSA um, from SMEs. So basically, they reason, the IMCO committee reasons that the obligations should be based on a company's ability to reach consumers rather than on the actual company size. So they are saying that because in the digital economy, SMEs can reach the same amount of customers as a bigger platform, they should be subject to the same obligations. And while it's possible in today's app economy to reach large numbers of consumers, um, even as a small company, we still have to consider that SMEs and startups have very limited human and financial resources. So, so if it's not developed thoughtfully, the DSA could increase the administrative burden on small operators. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they, the co one administrative cost is the 50,000 euros to establish a legal representative in the EU, which the DSA requires. So that is a financial burden and administrative burden to hire someone. And then by the commission's own estimates, an average microenterprise um, that receives about 50 takedown notices per year of which only 5% require a counter-notice procedure, that they already sustain an administrative cost of approximately 15,000 euros. And if these proposed obligations from the parliament draft apply um, to European and non-European SMEs, as well as micro-enterprises, 
they will definitely be disproportionately disadvantaged as well as financially discouraged from offering their services to European consumers at all. So due to these takedown procedures and the related costs of the DSA obligations, SMEs are disincentivized from operating in the EU. And then another big concern that we have is the risk of overblocking. So because small businesses are small, they ultimately only have a few people on their teams. Um, and then some of them don't even have legal compliance officers. And if they have someone, it might just be one person. So in addition to finding investors and developing new technologies and troubleshooting problems, doing cu customer service, doing research and product improvement, these teams can't really, they don't really have the capacity to be subject to the same obligations as larger enterprises who often have thousands of employees. Um, and so these disproportionate obligations could therefore lead smaller players to overblock consumer content because they don't want to risk non-compliance with the DSA because that would cost them more money again. And so basically the risk of overblocking is dangerous because the access to information and the freedom of expression of European consumers um, could be threatened. Okay, this is very, very concerning indeed. How do we ensure that more proportionality is included in the final text? Yeah, that is a key issue that we are working on. Um, and we're, we're grateful that there are voices in the European Parliament that do continue to stand up for the SMEs. Um, notably recently published was the draft opinion written by Finnish uh, member of the European Parliament, Hanna Verkunen. Um, she is a member of the Industry Research and Energy Committee. And that, um, that draft opinion actually takes the commission's DSA proposal and improves it by providing more safeguards rather than less um, for micro, small, and growing enterprises. And we particularly appreciate that the report suggests extra resources um, for small and micro enterprises who are experiencing difficulties in obtaining a legal representative in the EU because it is very expensive and not just the, it doesn't just have monetary costs. So having extra resources available could be, um, could really make a difference here for the smaller businesses. Um, and also the report, uh, the draft opinion suggests um, a transition period for growing enterprises so that they can stabil uh, stabilize in their operations before they are subject to additional obligations. So basically this would be for the companies who may grow in size and then they would meet the threshold and then um, for, for being a very large platform and then they would immediately have to comply, but it takes some time to work towards that compliance and to be able to do that. And so it's very important to have a transition period so that companies can continue to operate smoothly. And so obviously these opinions are very different. So it's very important to continue the conversation with policymakers on our end, but also that they continue to talk to each other in the parliament and as well um, at the member state level to get this legislation right. Because as Morgan mentioned, it's going to be hugely influential for the next decades. Um, and SMEs and startups are important across all European member states and to yeah, to maintain them as the backbone of the European economy, it's crucial that we have um, proportionality in the DSA. 
Well, thank you, Anna, for this really clear uh, overview. So we'll surely continue to talk about it to all policymakers to really bring the voice of our members. So if you're interested in learning more, we have published our position paper on the DSA, which you can find on our website and the show notes of this episode. And of course, um, Anna remains available for any questions you may have, and you can reach out to her through the contact form on our website. Thank you, Anna. Uh, You're welcome, and thank you for letting me come on and talk about this. And now it's time for random identifiers. Um, Anna, (laughs) you're up first. Um, What do you have for us? Yeah, I'm sure everybody's dying to hear more talking from me. (laughs) I am. I am. I just learned so much. So so my random identifier is a podcast this month. Um, So usually I listen to a lot of like news podcasts and politics and all the like. Um, But I recently started listening to a podcast that is historical fiction. So it's kind of a different different issue area for me. <laughs> um, it's called Edith. Um, it's a it's a scripted scripted comedy podcast, and they they describe it as the true ish story of Edith Wilson, who was um, Woodrow Wilson's wife. And oh yeah, he was a U.S. president um, in the '40s, and she so Edith Wilson is read by Rosamund Pike, which is I think pretty cool. Um, and so apparently Edith Wilson was kind of the first female president of the U.S. for a year after Woodrow Wilson suffered from a stroke. And so she secretly took over his presidential duties behind the scenes, issuing, you know, orders and hiring and firing people, causing international incidents and negotiating treaties, like literally presidential stuff. Um, but it's all like a secret. And so the podcast kind of follows her through this, like, through this time in her life. And it's like a yeah secret like obviously the secret that she's doing all this can't come out um and the episodes are released like once a week so I'm only like two episodes in but it's been really cool and a really different listening experience for a podcast because it kind of feels more like an audiobook almost but it's like the chapters are only released once a week um but yeah so if you're into historical political scandals I would highly recommend this podcast always always <laughs> yeah that's really cool it kind of sounds too of like sort of like radio shows from way back yeah. when mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what I'm fun. feeling yeah 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 that's really cool it's like you know you don't need to watch tv you can just listen to a really exciting story but it's still like exactly. a serial yeah I love that that's really cool yeah um, and, and it's like it's really entertaining so uh, yeah it's been great very cool um, I see. I just learned something else from you, Anna. Um, <laughs> Morgan, what do you have for us? Um, well, still in history. I just learned today, actually, um, the origins of Brussels sprouts. So, um, no way. <laughs> yeah. So apparently, well, I think I've heard of this before. Yeah. Well, that that main <laughs> different story. So apparently, um, this neighborhood in Brussels, actually where I live, but um, very close to the center, used to be uh, well a few centuries ago, probably a rural area, and that's where they would grow the vegetables uh, for, for 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 Brussels. And then end of the 19th century, early 20th, this area became so crowded and so populated that they try, were trying to find a new way to grow vegetables in less space and therefore that's how they came up with um, Brussels sprouts because they grow uh, upwards and can have lots of little sprouts on one on oh, one yeah, tree like I would say. Stalks, right? 
Yeah. So and uh, so Brussels sprouts are actually from Brussels. So interesting. Yeah. That's, see, the story I had previously heard was that they first appeared on like a farmer's market in Brussels, which is why they're called Brussels sprouts. I have no idea if this is true, but that's what I had heard from people in Brussels. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to make more research. <laughs> I, I'm just happy that they exist. I love yeah. Brussels sprouts. A roasted Brussels sprout in so good. A, a variety of flavor profiles. I just like, they're the perfect side dish. They yeah. have lots of nutrients. I love them. Yeah, Truly, I love them. I love them. <laughs> hot take. Yeah, hot take. I love Brussels sprouts. Um, <laughs> um, how about you, Niels? What do you have for us? Well, I was going to bring up this, this U.S fisherman that said he was swallowed by a humpback whale but yeah. then, then I then I came across this story so the Romanian Dracula castle that's normally like a major tourist attraction because it was inspired it inspired the vampire's home right. in uh, Bram Stoker's novel um, but now they really need to make up for the drop in visitor numbers so what they did they made it a COVID vaccination center no appointment needed, and you can also get a free entry to an exhibit of medieval torture tools. So, how's that for courage? Wow. I think that's brilliant, though. Like, you know, it's a site where, like, it's fun to visit, ostensibly. Um, I would go there. And then, like, also, you can do, you know, do your part to, to flatten the curve, so to speak, and get vaccinated. I think it's a great idea. Great idea. For sure. A two-for-one bonus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I like that we've had threads of history because my random identifier yeah. is sort of related to history as well, which is that there is a, um, I'm going to talk about another piece of content that I've been consuming, um, but it's a documentary um, that is on uh, Netflix that is about um, sort of like pop music um and each episode kind of focuses on something different so like one of them is like on pop country music which is a totally u.s thing but if anybody uh, is a shania twain fan it's a must watch um and then but like also sort of like the history of protest songs in pop music and um you know things things of that nature um they do an entire episode on the swedish uh producers who really have like completely taken over pop music in the US, uh, which is great because they've made it better in my opinion. Um, so anyway, it's really interesting and I highly recommend it. And it's called This Is Pop and there's eight episodes. Um, and I th I've decided that that like a few, there's like a few directors cause you can kind of get like a different vibe from a couple sets of them. I think that like each director does like two or three. Um, anyway, it's really great. And if you're a music fan, I think um, it's a it's a fun watch. Um, so I highly recommend. That sounds awesome. I'm going to add that to the list for sure. Yeah, yeah it's great. Sure. I, I learned a lot. Um, like, I didn't know uh, in the U.S., the band Blur had a huge song sort of towards the middle end of the 90s. Um, I did not know that they were, like, one of the pioneers of sort of, quote, Brit pop, um, which sort of brought us bands um, like Oasis and, and things like that. Um so anyway, um, and I didn't know that Oasis and Blur like hated each other. Um, I learned a lot. It was really fun. <laughs> it's been a delightful watch. <laughs> um, all right, we have reached the end of Greetings from Brussels, episode 14 of our Global Tech Swamp podcast. If you're interested in learning more, visit our website at actonline.org slash techswamp. You'll find all our episodes and show notes that include links to articles, blogs, and all the good stuff. 
And as always, you can subscribe to TechSwamp on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher to get all the latest episodes first. And don't forget to rate and review. And we now have transcripts available. So if you want to read the TechSwamp podcast, you can find them at the top and bottom of our show notes, as well as on podscribe.com. Just search for TechSwamp. And to follow what we're doing on a daily basis, follow us on Twitter and at EU AppMakers. Thanks for listening. Uh, my last episode hosting, but I'm excited to become a full-time listener. So bye for now, everyone. <laughs> bye. bye. Thank you. Bye.